living. And we know that because every time we come to it, you and I are different people. Think about it. We're different people every time we sit down and open the, up the Word of God. And so our situation, our circumstances, everything going on is different every time you open this book. And so the reality is God wants to speak to you where you are. He doesn't, he's not sitting there going, I know what you got going on, but listen to what I got to say. He's not the wait to talk guy. He wants to be involved. He wants to speak to you. He wants to give you answers. And so uh, one of the other things I saw this week was, and we won't do this every week, but maybe some of you were raised in very conservative Baptist church. But one of the things that I saw this week was just this high regard for the word of God that it is powerful, but it's also God's holy written word. And so one of the things they did at this conference I went to is when they read the passage they were about to study, they stood. So let's do that. Let's stand up this morning as we hear God's word. And I'll stand up too, because I don't normally stand up. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children... Because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever." So, Father, we thank you for this word. We know that it's living. We know that you're able to speak into our situations right now. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill this place, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would instruct us in righteousness. Would you convict us of the ways that we need to change? Would you purge us of the things that are harming us? Lord, would you help us to see Jesus in a more magnified way than we've ever seen him before? In Jesus' name, amen. It's also another way just to get us all awake. I mean, you know, let's be honest. So that said, in 1 John this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 2. And I want us to remember where we were based on why John wrote this letter. 1 John chapter 1 verse 4 says that this, I've written to you. He's writing like a father would write to his children. He says, I write this to you so that your joy may be full. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I write this letter to you so that you may not sin. Remember, we read the message translation where it says, I write this to you so that you may be guided out of sin. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the first part, says that he's written this letter to us that we may know that we have eternal life, that you have assurance of your salvation. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, part B, he says that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The name of the Son of God is not just his name. It's not just the title his parents gave him. 
It's his character. That you may continue to believe, not just in Jesus, but in the character of Jesus revealed through the Son. He also wrote this letter to deal with false prophets that were coming in and saying that Jesus wasn't actually the Messiah that the Old Testament promises. So he wrote it to deal with false prophets and their false testimony concerning Jesus. And then he also wrote it to remind them that Jesus is coming back. The imminent return of Christ is an important doctrine in the Bible, not just because it's true, but also because it changes the way that we will behave. If we believe that Jesus could come back at any time, and every generation of believers, true believers, has always lived with that idea and that teaching that Jesus could come back, Jesus even said, I will come back as a thief in the night. Not because he was going to come and steal our stuff, but because he was going to come back for us and steal us away. He's going to come, us, come back and take us to the place that he promised to prepare for us. And so with that in mind, think about it. When I was growing up, if I knew my parents were coming back at a certain time, I would get the list of chores done before they, left, before they got back. It would have this holy fear, or at least a fear, that if I don't get these chores done, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to have disobeyed my parents. And so the idea is God's given us things to be about. So since he's coming back, I ought to be about them when he returns, even if I don't feel like they're accomplished yet. And so these are all important things and reasons why he wrote the letter of 1 John. So he's going to write verse 12 through 14 to say and remind them of who they know and the proof that they know him. How do we know that we know God? Now, knowing God, the word is gnosko in the Greek. It means to know by experience. And so he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, excuse me, I think it's verse 11 of chapter 1, No, it's not. There's no verse 11. It's verse 11 of chapter 2. I wrote down the wrong verse. There you go. Verse 8. He says, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's saying the darkness, and he's later going to say the same idea, that the lust of things is passing away and it will not be eternal. But what he also says is that darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. And so with that idea in mind, he's going to remind them that the true light has already shined on their hearts as believers and that the darkness is being rooted out. It's, being, it's like when you shine a flashlight into a room and all the cockroaches start to leave, especially if you've got one of those basements where bugs come in. You shine a light and everything scatters. And, and that's the same thing is true, by the way, at a high school party. <laughs> Drew or Lucas show up with their little light on their car and they shine it in a place where things are going on that shouldn't be going on there. And what happens? The cockroaches start to leave. They start to go, ooh, I don't want to get caught, and they all run because they love their sin and they prefer darkness to being exposed. Trust me, I get that. 
But the reality is, is that he's going to remind them that the true light has already shined on their hearts, and here's how they can know. So verse 12, he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So he says, he reminds them who they are positionally in Christ. The things that are true, whether or not your works line up, if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven you. If you've confessed your sin and you've believed on Jesus Christ for salvation, then your sins have been forgiven. That's done. You have known him who is from the beginning. You've known him. He's revealed himself to you. You now have fellowship with God because your sins, the one thing that divides you, but it's a wall between you and God. God's removed that wall, that wall of separation, not a veil, but a brick wall that is our transgression, our sin. He's removed it. And then he says, you have overcome the wicked one. And I love this because he says there, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I love this because in Psalm chapter 119, verse 9, it says, How can a young man cleanse his ways? But by taking heed according to your word, by giving ear to its instruction, by letting the word of God rule in your hearts. Why does he say young men? I believe that in Psalm 119, he says, How can a young man cleanse his ways? Because young men in any society are more tempted and have more available to them to sin than any other person in society. So if a young man can be cleansed and have his sin dealt with and have it cleansed by the word of God, then anybody can. And maybe I'm wrong in that, but as being a young man in our society, I have more opportunities available to sin than in any other time in, in existence. And yet what he says is, when it, how can a young man cleanse his ways? But by taking heed according to the word of God, you have overcome the wicked one, young men. That's what he says in this. He says, you have known the father. Now, he says, I write to you little children because you have known the father. And I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. He's saying in both cases, they have both known the father. They've known him as who is from the beginning. God the father was from the beginning. He was before the beginning even. And then he says, uh, you have known him who is from the beginning. And then he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Now, is he talking about certain age groups? Because I feel like he left women out, right? He, didn't, he says, young men, old men, he says, children, but here's what it says in the uh, New Living Translation. New Living Translation says it a little differently. I think it exposes what the intent is. He's not writing to age groups. He's writing to maturity levels. So when he says this, he says, I'm writing to you who are God's children. Who's God's children? Anyone who comes to him through his son. We're all God's children. Because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith. So when he says fathers, he's saying to those of you that are mature in the faith. Because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith. I'm writing to you children who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. Children don't normally go to battle, do they? But young people in the faith 
can overcome the evil one because Jesus is the one who did the battle. He's the one that fights. Children win victory all the time in this battle because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and rulers of the darkness of this age. Jesus fought that battle. Jesus won that battle. How do we know? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says it's because Jesus was risen from the dead, which is a receipt for the payment that takes away the wrath of God that we deserved before him. And so he says, I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith, fathers, because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I feel like he said that twice. He says first, and I underline this in my Bible, he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. But if you go down a little bit further, he says in verse 14, I have written to you fathers. This is something that John had already told them. And now he's reminding them, I told you this before. Remember before when I said, you have known the father? Now I'm saying, I'm writing to you right now to remind you again the same truth that you know the father. I think we need reminders, don't we? When sin and when, when hectic lifestyle and just the chaos that this world brings, our jobs, just everybody pulling us in 10 different directions, we forget whose we are. We forget who we know. And then we start to think that our problems are bigger than the one who knows us and did everything to save us and is continuing to fight on our behalf. So he says, I write to you and I have written to you. He's not repeating himself. He's saying two things that are the same, but with a different tense. He says, I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. So a lot of the same themes that he's saying in different ways so that they'll hopefully land on hearts that are prepared in different ways. So he says, since this is the case, since the light has already shown, and because the darkness is fading away. He says, therefore, you know whose you are. You have known the Father from the beginning, that he's fighting the battle for you, that he's placing his word in your hearts to help you and equip you to fight against the temptations of this world. Verse 15 goes on to say, therefore, since this is the case, do not love the world. Do not love the world. What's he mean by that? I've got a picture of a guy hugging the planet because you don't have to Google very much to find tree huggers, right? Is he saying, do not love the natural world? Is he saying, don't take care of the planet we've been given? Not be good stewards? Not be conservationists? Is that what he's saying? No. Is he saying, don't love people? Even ungodly people? No, I'm pretty sure Jesus told us to love our enemies. Well, here's the deal. Anything that we love, anything that has our affection, anything that has our first and foremost prominence in our heart becomes our God. Now, I tried to put little g on there, but the program, it automatically makes God, like, you know, capitalized. But the idea is anything that we love, anything that becomes your master passion is your God, whether or not you would say that. How do I know what my God is? 
Whatever I devote my time, my talents, or my money to, whether you want to admit it or not, that's your God. Look at your checkbook. You'll know what your biggest God is. And here's the deal. When Jesus said to the lawyer who asked him, he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, you've heard it from of old. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Jesus didn't say that for the first time there. His father said that to Moses, and we have it written down in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not some of it, all of it, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, the world, what's he talking about? He's not saying don't love nature. He's not saying don't love even ungodly worldly people. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Even God loves the world, but what he's talking about here doesn't have to do with that. He's talking about the worldly system created by man. Uh, So what is the love of the world? Uh, This worldly system created by man. And I have there for you Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Romans 1, verse 25. And this is like the longest run-on sentence ever by Paul. But in the middle of it, here's what he says in verse 25. And I'm going to start in verse 24 because otherwise I'm missing the rest of the sentence. He says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves for those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what we have a a tendency to do is rather than worshiping God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, we start to worship the things he's created rather than the creator who gave them, who is forever blessed. And we are all apt to do this, every single one of us. We have this fallen nature that has this tendency to go, God, will you give me this job? Will you give me this person to be married to? Will you give us children? And even just in relationships that God has given and he blesses us with, we have this tendency to worship the job to worship the person that we're married to, to worship our children who are in our likeness. And we we see ourselves in them. We, We love ourselves. So we make them first and foremost rather than God. And so he says, do not love the world. So what, what does he mean by don't love the world? Well, he gives us Satan's uh, three play playbook. Um, now, I'm not a big sports fan. I love sports, but I don't know anything about them. So I'm not going to act like I know what I'm talking about. But I know that there are certain historical offenses and defenses in football that had like this same run of plays and they dominated with them. They got really good at just a few plays. They switched them up. They tweaked a few things and they could just dominate in whatever league they were in. I wish I knew more about sports. I'd give an example. You guys would all be drawn in and just overwhelmed by how good I am at sports, but that's not me. So that's all. I don't have that. But Satan has three plays, and he uses the same ones every cotton pick in time. And you might say, well, 
then he can't dominate because three plays can't possibly be powerful. But here's the deal, they are. They're the same three plays that he ran against Eve. They're the same three plays he ran against Jesus. And they are the same three plays that he will run against you. So John talks about them. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And I have there for you the lust of the eyes and the desire to see that which is perverse. Isn't it interesting that certain things that you know are bad, if you see them, you like have to look again, like, did I just see that? And then you watch again. And it's so horrific that you can't look away. It's so horrific that you're like, wait a minute, what was that? And you scroll back. That, that's our flesh. That's our tendency. Satan knows that. And so the lust of the flesh, the desire to do what feels good. And, and that's, that's hard because what feels good sometimes isn't necessarily what we would call sin. It's just like one more Twinkie or one more cheeseburger. And, and though it's no big deal, it can hinder us, right? It can make us uncomfortable. Can, and I don't know about you guys, but if I eat, and I, it's like something that's really good, those Dots pretzels, good grief. Have you guys had those? They're these pretzels with like garlic salt, and they're, they're awesome. But if I keep eating them till the bag's gone, and I don't stop early, I can feel pretty rough afterwards. The same was true with me with, with uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon. I couldn't just eat. I couldn't just drink a couple. That's why I don't drink anymore. I could not stop. I always told people I could, but why? Now, that's a whole other story in and of itself. So, but the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The pride of life is the desire to rule over others. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter three, you might say, well, what does it matter? Well, it kind of matters because the world is now ruled by Satan because one person gave in to temptation. Genesis chapter three, verse six. Now, hopefully we all know the story. If you don't come up afterwards, we'll talk about it. But in Genesis chapter three, this pivotable, the pivotal, pivotal moment in, in history, we have Eve being approached by Satan in the form of a serpent. God gave no commands except one. You can eat of any tree in the whole garden except one. And this tree you shall not eat of. So in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And I could put an ellipsis there and go, and now here we are. And from that point on, all of the genealogies say, and then so-and-so lived this many days, and then they died. So-and-so lived this many days, and then they died. Death came through sin. And so it matters. And so this playbook that Satan ran against Eve brought her to a place where she saw. She saw the fruit that she was not supposed to eat, she looked at it, and it doesn't mean that she like looked at it and was like, oh, look, fruit, and then moved on. She gazed upon it. She lusted after it. She wanted it. She didn't need it. But it says here that she saw the tree 
was good for fruit, that it was pleasant, excuse me, good for food. Now, is food bad? No, but she was told not to eat. She directly disobeyed the commandment of God. She thought, she justified it. Man, that, that would make me full. It, it's good food. It's going to keep me alive. Uh, it's able to make me wise. Who doesn't need wisdom? It's, it's able to do all these things for me. Interestingly enough, God said he would provide food, and he already had. God says he will give wisdom, and he gives it to all of us liberally when we ask. And, um, and so it, it's pleasant. And so the, the whole point being that she was tempted in the same that, way that Jesus was. And we'll look at him in a little bit. So why does it matter if I love the world? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that's where we're going to turn. Whatever you love, you become a servant of it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Whatever you love makes you its servant. Jesus, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, that's a Bible word for wealth, confidence, and whatever else you trust in. Whatever you trust in is your mammon. Whether it's money, a job, a position, people liking you, the fear of man, all of those things can become your master passion, and you become enslaved to them. And so Jesus says, uh, pick one. You'll be way happier if you'll have one master. So here's the deal. Before Christ, we are slaves to our flesh. We're slaves to our sin. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks about this. Romans 6. In verse 16. says this. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, Instead, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So, when you let your flesh or your body control what it is your mind and your body does, the reality is you became a slave to your own desires. Now, maybe you've got a different experience, but for me, when I become a slave to my own desires, my own wants, my own appetites, guess what? They change. So I become a slave to somebody that has no idea what I want. One day, I want this. The next day, I want that. 
And because of that, I'm always chasing passions and desires and lusts that really start to cloud up my life and fill it with chaos. And yet, those who fear the Lord shall be safe. The same is true if you fear what people think about you. By the way, that will always change. One day, they'll desire you to be this way. The next day, they'll desire you to dress this way. The next day, they'll have this expectation. And it's a moving target, and you can never be satisfied because they'll never be happy, and neither will you. But I love that the Lord never changes. And that instead of being a slave to our own desires, our own flesh, our own lusts, which always leaves me empty, doesn't mean leave me filled back up, I can be a slave of righteousness. Not a righteousness I have to earn. God's already done that for me, but now I just get to be his. And I get to do what he wants me to do. And since our God is not a God of confusion, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. He leads us to a smooth place. He leads us, Psalm 23, to green pastures. He leads me beside cool waters. He puts out a plate of food before me in the presence of my enemies. He becomes all the things that I was trying to get from the fruit, the thing that was really just a trap of Satan, the thing that's really just a trap of me. And so the idea is that loving the world ends up making you confused about what our purpose is for being here. It even causes us now to think that it's all about gaining things. And if you read anything in the Bible, read the book of Ecclesiastes. You think that you can try out every passion that you have and try to figure out which one you can find fulfillment in. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to do it. King Solomon was the richest guy that ever existed. Donald Trump's got nothing on him. I'm telling you, you think he has some money. Uh, the reality is King Solomon had more than anybody. Even the, the queen of Egypt came to see Solomon. She was pretty rich herself, and she was just amazed at what Solomon had gathered up. He got so much stuff that at one point, silver and gold no longer were cool to him. So he made a throne out of ivory and gold and, and all this stuff. And then you know what he did? That's cool, but maybe I'll get some monkeys. He, he bought monkeys and peacocks. And, and it's funny because I think we could probably relate. We may not buy monkeys, but it's like we, we want to find something that will make us happy. A parrot that says our name and talks like us. You know, whatever it might be. But the reality is, at the end of Solomon's life, he tried everything. The dude had, and I can't remember the numbers, a thousand women in his life. Think women will fulfill it? Guess what? He had a thousand more women, more problems. <laughs> One wife is enough for me. I don't know why anybody would try more. <laughs> more husbands, more problems. We'll be even with that. But the reality is he had a thousand women at his disposal, which is a horrible way to put it and forgive me, but I don't know how it could be anything other than that. I don't, I don't know how any, it, how can you have a meaningful relationship with a thousand people? But here's the deal. At the end of his life, after serving all these master passions, all of them, he said, this is man's all, to love God and, and to fulfill what he gives to do. And I'll misquote it, so I'll go to Ecclesiastes. 
It's going to take me a while because I don't have my tab Bible. I need one too. Ecclesiastes. Hey, I found it. Thank you, Lord. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's everything. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments, let him rule you. Become a slave of righteousness. So how do we resist temptation? This is all great, but I'm still tempted. How do I resist temptation? Well, let's look at Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. I think Dave's laughing at my picture up there. Now, it doesn't have to be money. Insert anything in there that you know, that you know is a trap to you. You know, whether it's money, the pursuit of friends, of the pursuit of popularity, um, I'm just listing things that I've struggled with. The pursuit of followers, the pursuit of uh, whatever. Um, it's a trap. It won't fulfill. And after you do it, you'll become a slave to it. It's like you put your hands in the holes and you go, if you put your hands in this hole, then you'll be happy. And so we go, okay. We put our hands in there and we go, wow, that's neat. I don't know what's going on and it's kind of cool. And then what comes on there is a set of handcuffs. Can't get our hand out. We're stuck. The thing that we thought would make us happy actually made us a prisoner. And so Jesus was tempted just like Eve in Matthew chapter 4. And it says in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Go figure. Now when the, tempt, the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down right here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So the, the, the desire to be seen as, as good in front of people. And so the pinnacle of the temple is where people would be gathered before worship. And so if he did it in that public place, people would see that he's the Son of God before it was his time. And so the temptation was to be seen as godly in front of people. They would see the miracle happen, and that, that wasn't the way God wanted them to do it. And then Jesus said to him, verse 7, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on the exceedingly high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. So it must have been a pretty tall mountain. And he says this, All these things I will give you, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me. Now Jesus doesn't say, Well, technically those things are under my command because I'm the Son of God. What he does is he, he doesn't argue. He says, um, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I will bow down to no one but my Father. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So he was tempted with Satan's standard three plays. He had to be tempted in the same way that Eve was. The lust of the eyes, seen in Matthew 4, verse 5 and 6. The lust of the flesh, you know, he's hungry. He's been fasting. He's been telling his flesh no. And it wasn't until he was at his weakest point when Satan shows up and goes, hey, bet you're hungry. You can turn that stone into bread. Don't you see what I see? We can't trust in our senses to tell us what's the right thing to do. Jesus had to overcome these temptations because Adam and Eve did not. He had to fulfill all righteousness and obey the Father instead of the flesh. And so when he did that, he overcame sin. And then in the pride of life, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, he had power and dominion offered to him to rule over all of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, nope. Those things are already going to be mine. But the way that I'm going to obtain them is not through Satan giving them to me. God's going to give them to me when I overcome sin and die for the sins of mankind. He knew that lifting up and being exalted into power came through humiliation. He knew that it came through temptation. He knew that it came through saying no to sin and laying down his life literally. And I love this because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that we don't have a high priest that can be tempted like us, but instead he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So the last slide I have for you, how do we resist the temptation to love the world? We have to follow Jesus' example. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the first fruits of our faith. He is the only one that you and I should be following. But I want to point out he was kept safe by the truth. The truth is what set him free from the temptation. John chapter 8, verse 31. You can only combat a lie with the truth. John chapter 8, verse 31 says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, he says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. One of the first marks of being a disciple is that you actually abide, you, you abide, you hang out, you exist in the presence of the word of God. And you shall know the truth by abiding in the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered and said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house of God forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And then, so notice, he was kept safe by the truth, but also notice, he didn't avoid interaction with the world. Where did Jesus go the moment he was baptized? It says the Spirit took him away to the desert to be tempted. He didn't avoid the world like many Christians will. Well, the world's mean and it's nasty and it's dirty. I'm not going to be around worldly people. I'm not going to go to worldly places. Now, if you struggle with alcoholism or drugs, I'm going to say that early on, you don't need to be around those places. 
You need to flee temptation. But if God's called you to go to a worldly place, then take advantage of that place and be Jesus there. Be in the world, but not of it. Don't love the world. So he didn't avoid the world, and we see that. His master passion is the love of the Father. And we see that in today's passage, verse 15 of chapter 2. It says there, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he says, If anyone loves the world, look at this, the love of the Father is not in him. You're divided in your heart. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Don't take that as condemnation. Take that as my passion needs to change. Lord, change me because I do love the world. There's times where I have to confess that to the Lord. I love the world. I love how this thing makes me feel. I love how doing this thing. But the reality is God wants to set you free from that. And he is able. He was in the world, but he held fast, waiting for what his father had promised him, not what the world would offer him. See, the thing that Jesus wanted was to have the promises of God fulfilled, but he knew that God wouldn't do it in certain ways. He knew the Father. He had fellowship with the Father. So he knew that being tempted to sin was not something the Father would do to fulfill his ultimate will. So one more passage, James chapter 4. Just to the left, a couple of books, which are very small books, very small letters. James chapter 4, verse 4. James is kind of rough with his language, but I think it's to get everyone's attention. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Anybody who basically loves something else, master passion more than loving the Father, he calls them adulterers. Uh, And it's supposed to be one of those things where you're like, I can't believe you just call me that. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God's jealous for us. He's jealous for our hearts. He's jealous for our minds. He wants us to think about him. And he's like a husband. A husband whose wife is constantly thinking about other things or other people gets jealous because he loves her. God's jealous over our hearts when we're divided and we love the things of the world that harm us more than we love him. Then he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to those who are humble. Therefore, submit to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. So submit to God, and then you will be able to resist those things that constantly ensnare you and entrap you. And then in verse 17, as we close, let's read it one more time. He says, the world is passing away, and the lust of it. This present system that we live in will not exist forever. 
It's passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Sandlot, forever. (laughs) You know? And I believe that being in the presence of God forever will be the most enjoyable thing for those who have already willingly given their hearts to him. So how do I know what the will of God is? That's your homework. I wrote down there the will of God. You can find it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, chapter 5, verse 18, 1 Peter 2, 15, and Romans 12, 2. Write those down, look them up. Because all the time we're going, God, what's your will for my life? And I think we're looking for specifics, but he's already shown us what the general idea is. And so read those passages, and I hope they bless you this week. That's how, because he just said here, those who do the will of God will abide forever. How many of us want to abide forever in the kingdom? I do. So I need to do the will of God. Those who do the will of God will abide forever. Okay, Lord, what's your will for me? So Father, um, thank you for these sobering words. I confess to you that many times I find myself caught in the trap of loving the world, what it has to offer, even desiring it. And I know that many times you use it despite my failing. But I, I don't want to walk in that anymore. I, don't, I want you to be my master passion. I want you to be the, the king of my heart. I want you to be what I desire more than anything else in this life so that I'm no longer ensnared by sin that robs, kills, and destroys I want the work of Satan to stop in each one of our lives. And I know that that starts with me letting you cleanse my heart and change me and give me new desires. So Lord Jesus, would you do that for us? Would you start today? Help us to call sin what you call sin. Help us to have a desire for the things that you call good. Help us to enjoy the things that you have given for us as good. And help us to trust that the things that you have promised, though they may not be fulfilled yet, you're going to fulfill your promises as a good father does. We have to but just ask and allow you to work. So Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. Pierce through our hard hearts and reveal the ways that we have wickedness within us and set us free from those things. In Jesus' name, amen.